the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Everyone, welcome to the Common Good on the Mondayest of Mondays. I'm just going to say that for all How can Mondays. The last now. three Mondays be the Mondayest of Mondays. How each Monday seems to top the Monday previous <laughs> here on the Common Good. If you want to get a hold of us, which we would love if you did, a couple ways you can do that on Twitter at Common Good Talk, on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the Common Good. You can call us 312 660 2594. And uh, if you follow the podcast, uh, if you like, subscribe, review, that stuff actually helps us. And if you would take it just one itsy-bitsy step further and just share it with somebody, someone that you think might dig it, or even if you think they might hate it, that might also be interesting to talk to that person. Either way, if you hit that share button and uh, pass it along to a friend, that really, really does help us out a lot. And one of the things that we talk about on Mondays is weekends are weird for pastors anyway, and we'll talk a little bit later in the show about what we preached and sort of uh, have a bit of a postmortem on that. Uh-oh. But uh, no, that's okay. okay but good. I'm curious just how your weekend was. I feel like we we often talk about the different stage of life that you and I yep. are at, yep. and uh, our weekends tend to look drastically different. But how was yours? Yeah, it was great. We uh, On Saturday morning, my daughter is on her JV high school tennis team, and they they have like these all day or like multiple hour long like tournament or might be multiple teams playing. So my wife and I were like, we're new to this tennis thing. So we're like, I don't like, I don't know. Do we go early right when it starts? Do we? And so we showed up and uh, ended up thinking we'd only be there for like an hour to see a match because she'd have to wait. And they just played them in quick succession. <laughs> so we sat there for four hours in the sun and it was really fun. And then that night we had a, a, a church thing at someone's house, like a worship team gathering, like just to celebrate yeah. and, and eat together and laugh, which I is always fun. And then the church Sunday morning and then. My son and I got to go with my brother-in-law and my nephew to the Cubs game yesterday, nice. which is always fun. Nice. And so, yeah, it was a really busy weekend, but really fun. Lot, lots of family time. And, uh, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. How about you? It was my wife's birthday weekend. Oh, that's so, pre-pressure. Big no, opportunity. No, no, It was a ton of fun. Friday, we Good. did like a, like a brunch with our little family. And then we just walked around downtown Geneva, got some coffee, which was delightful. Then I watched the kids, and she went and got a... Manicure, pedicure, nice. all that, all that deal, and then um, Grandma came over and watched the kids, and so we went out to eat like at our favorite place in Naperville, under the lights, and had, awesome had tapas. And then Saturday, actually, we kind of converted our backyard to a little bit of like a Ravinia festival type thing. So we had some friends play some music, and we uh, we just did like a joint birthday party between her and one of her best friends, Ashley, whose birthday is the day before. So we just got to have a bunch of friends over Fun. and eat food and kids with glow sticks and had like a little. 
outdoor concert. It was it was a blast. It was it was so much fun. I, that's I had well, a lot of fun. That's well done too. It sounds like you you. I know it wasn't just you, but it wasn't just me. There no. is, I jokingly said there always feels like a little bit of pressure when it's your spouse's birthday, not because they're going to be mad, because you want to celebrate them well. Right. <clears throat> sounds like you did well, man. Sounds well, like you did I well. appreciate that. Let uh, let's have her on the show. We'll see <laughs> if your assessment is correct. Uh, before we jump into though, uh, if you are even half paying attention, uh, you know that the Bears had a pretty exciting day yes. yesterday, and so because this is a Chicago show, I think it's always worth talking about some Chicago news. Uh, Eddie Pinheiro, who is a kid by most standards, by the way, the rookie kicker, 24 years old. Uh, he had a pretty tremendous end to the game yes, yesterday. Did. I don't want you guys to hear a little bit of that. Scales down the ball. O'Donnell to the hole from the right hash. Angle to the left. Good placement. Boot by Eddie Pinheiro. Kick to the uprights. And the kick is good for the win. Pinheiro with the narrow kick to send Denver down as time expires. Bears 16, Denver 14. They escape with a victory on the road. Rarely done here in Denver in the first two weeks of the season. Bears are 1-1. One one. Fade to black. <laughs> I love Jeff Joniak, by I the way. Say, I, need so, I need someone that excited in my life. I love Jeff Joniak. That guy, at the end of your sermon, it's like, ah, that was great. That's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Fade to black. Okay, all right, calm but, down. We're but taking that offering. game was crazy, man. I, I got home from the Cubs game a little bit after halftime, and so we sat down and we watched the end of it. And uh, it, it was a really ugly game, some really <laughs> bad calls <laughs> by the refs. But then the Bears were done. I mean, 30 seconds yep. left down one. They're done. And Trubisky, who was pretty bad most of the game, hits that fourth and 15 pass, and they get the one second left to get the kicker. And then all offseason, all we've heard about is the kicker. So to see this guy come in and make three, including the 53-yarder to win, it's pretty exciting. Especially for, I mean, a kid that young. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm just getting older, but, like, that's so much pressure. You ever watch that moment? You're like, yeah. 24? I would have just, I would have snapped under the pressure. I just think, uh, I don't know. That was worth celebrating. Yeah, it was, it was a great win. They needed that win, and it looked like, there's there's one of those where you uh, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, and that That's was right. certainly what that game was. All right, so I want to I want to wrap up here talking a little bit about a, a story I saw. Kirk Cameron creates TV news series featuring faith based conversations with celebrity friends. Actor yep. and outspoken Christian Kirk Cameron is launching a new TV series on the TBN network called One on One. Set to be the growing pain star star's own take on comedians in cars getting coffee, Cameron said that he hopes the unique format will help his guests feel relaxed and able to talk openly about their faith. And he said this, I loved how Jerry Seinfeld would take some of these guests out of the studio and they would just go get some coffee on a show. And Kevin Hart would do the same thing with his show. And James Corden had lots of fun taking his guests out. So I thought, I'm going to try a one-on-one competition with everybody, the actor explained, according to the Christian Post. Indeed, while Kirk hopes to touch on some heavier subjects during the conversations, he also wants to keep it lighthearted for viewers. In an age of division, social media disagreement, and bitter public feuds, Cameron is determined to stand out from the negative noise. Mm-hmm. What do you think about this? I, I mean, it's a cool idea. Like, th- this seems to be the way this is going, right? Like, Seinfeld started it, as he said, driving around, talking to comedians, which I love, by the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, I for what he's trying to accomplish, it seems like a fun thing. He says, I just want to have this show be a little bit of heaven on earth where we're having a good time. We're talking about what matters most in our faith, our family and how to make the world a better place in the future. Uh, I think this this show would be uh, more interesting if it wasn't just Christians that he was riding with. But yeah. there were some but that he's very clear about that's not what he's trying to do. And right. it's on TBN. Right. So right, right. this is Kirk Cameron talking to other Christians, uh, celebrities about their faith, driving around or having coffee or whatever. 
So again, am I going to be setting my DVR to like tape these on a weekly basis? Probably not. You have a DVR or is it? I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I'm going to pop on my VHS. Exactly. But, you know, what he's trying to accomplish, it seems interesting. You know, I'm sure there'll be an audience for it. It's never a bad thing when people are talking about their faith. Uh, and hopefully that that is an encouragement to people. And so, yeah, good for him. You know, he's using his celebrity. Uh, he, he definitely keeps himself out there. Right. So he's constantly doing new things. And uh, uh, man, I do also love that it's been uh, 30 years and he's still the growing pain star. Like he still kind of in. looks like it. Actually. He does. That guy he does, does not so. age. Here's, I like what he says here. He says we can turn on the news or read our news feed through social media and just everybody's fighting about something, whether it's Democrats fighting with Republicans or it's Democrats fighting against each other, which is also true for Republicans, I'd add. We can talk all about racism and we can talk all about gender identity and there's so much of that all the time and I wanted to make a show that was positive, that was hopeful, that was refreshing. I do totally agree. It would be nice to see other voices other than just simply Christian yeah. celebrity friends, which perhaps it'll grow into that. He's going to eventually run out of Christian celebrity friends, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of my hope. I hope that he would uh, invite kind of some other voices into that conversation because I think he's right. I think we talk about this on the show all the time that like, man, Everywhere you look, it's like, is everyone just furious all the time? Right, like, right. everyone seems worked up. Like, this and seems I like it's going to have a little bit of a fluffy feel to it, but that's okay. Like, we need some of that. Like, my first thought was like, man, this should be argumentative. Like, people going bad at it or get these, like, right. brilliant scholars on there. But no, there's something to be said about being able to sit back and watch two people who you recognize from TV just talking about their faith. I think it's great. Uh, good for him. I wonder if it'll ever turn dark. Like when you set the expectation of this being heaven on earth, is there? That's do they true. run the risk of like somebody coming and just having a bad day and then all hell breaks loose? <laughs> Hopefully not. But yeah, that's kind of the same reason that we sometimes just do these like feel good yeah. stories on this yeah. show because hey, there's a lot of heaviness in the world. Sometimes you just got to hear about like people doing good stuff in the world. Yeah. All right, coming up next out of Christianity today. Here's the headline: Evangelicals who distrust Muslims likely don't know Muslims. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And you know what? I take back what I said about Monday. It's not bad. No, not a bad Monday. It's a decent... It's a fine, it's a B minus Monday. Okay. And I just, <laughs> not that you all asked for it, but there's, there's my grade on the Monday yeah. so far. It might change. Who knows? Okay. You, I'm good with the B minus. You accept the B minus. I do. <laughs> A little overcast today. It makes it a Monday and Monday. Like, I would love uh, if you like highly contested the B minus. You're like, like I need not. a, I need a four zero Monday. <laughs> like, wow, Brian really cares about Mondays. I care about a my lot. Mondays. All right, you can find us all over the place. Eleven sixty hope dot com slash the common good or on Facebook Common Good Radio Show. And uh, here's a story that I saw. I was telling you before we actually came back that um, the moment that I saw the photo associated with the story, I knew it was Dearborn, Michigan, mm. which is. So strange. Dearborn, Michigan, which is where I'm from. It's the uh, closest suburb west of Detroit. Um, That's where most of my family still resides in Dearborn or that area. And the headline says evangelicals who distrust Muslims likely don't know Muslims. Hmm. And so uh, maybe we'll get into this a little bit later in the segment here, because that's actually a sentiment that I believe uh, very passionately about. And it's something that I have all sorts of personal stories and experiences having lived in Dearborn during 9-11 and having seen some Mm. stuff, uh, having friends who have been on the receiving end of a lot of Islamophobia. And it's just, it's been a topic that's been close to my heart for a long time, but let me just read some of it. And then we actually have uh, some suggestions for how to actually deal with this, because I imagine, I don't, I don't want to presume somebody heard that headline and is already like, 
their blood pressure is rising. It is. And that's one when I before you read it a little bit, I that's what impresses me that Christianity Today ran this article. Like, yeah, right. That it's not like, you know, you and I, you and I didn't get this out of Muslim dot com or whatever. Right. Like, is, this is that a website? No, <laughs> it could be. I mean, it probably but is. Christianity Today is going, hey, we need to do better at this. Yeah. And we're writing this article. I think that's impressive. All right. So it begins and it says a home in Dearborn, Michigan celebrates Ramadan. Earlier this week, a Baptist church in Michigan cancels, uh, canceled an event titled uh, 9-11 Forgotten is Michigan Surrendering to Islam due to pushback from fellow Christians and politicians. The pastor of Bloomfield Hills Baptist Church identifies as an Islamophobe and organized the gathering because he sees Islam as a growing threat in the U.S., the Washington Post reported. Can we just pause for a second? Yes. I didn't know that people actually self-identify as an, as like an Islamophobe. Like that's oh, yeah. A- no, it's the same as like a I'm claustrophobic. It's okay. the, it's the same level of for for some people it's as benign as any other phobia. I am just Islamophobic. Oh, that's interesting. While some white evangelicals research has shown that those who know Muslims in their communities tend to hold more positive views and are more likely to see uh, commonalities between their two faiths, the personal relationship with Muslims that's a game changer. Todd Green, Luther College professor and former Islamophobia advisor to the U.S. State Department, told the Post, "It tends to make you less Islamophobic." Yet, surveys from various sources have noted the friendship gap between evangelicals and their Muslim neighbors. More than a third, thirty-five percent of white evangelicals, knew a Muslim personally in, in a 2017. Pew Research Center released fewer than any other religious group and evangelical surveyed rated Muslims more negatively than any other faith. The Southern Baptist affiliated Lifeway Research found in 2017 that 17% of those with evangelical beliefs reported having a Muslim friend, while the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding reported this year that only 22% of evangelicals say they interacted frequently with Muslims. So this uh, this organization led by a rabbi seeking to improve Muslim Jewish relations also noted that one in three evangelicals with frequent interaction with Muslims viewed Islam as similar to their own faith compared to one in four evangelicals overall. So it goes on to kind of explain a little bit of why that's an issue. And it says here are five takeaways for evangelicals from one of the leading indicators of Muslim community sentiment in America. And I think these are actually really helpful, whether you agree or disagree. We want to share them quickly as at least a jumping off point. To, to hopefully better improve in this area. So why don't you kick us off with number one? Yeah, I think these are really important. He said the five takeaways from here. One, uh, white evangelicals lag behind in knowing and befriending Muslims while Jews excel. Hmm. When asked, do you know a Muslim personally? And this was touched on before. 35% of evangelicals and 44% of Protestants said yes. Uh, more than half of the general public responded in the affirmative. Uh, only 9% of white, even, white evangelicals said they knew a Muslim close enough to call for help. Hmm. Protestants were slightly higher at 45%. So, again, it's this uh, this when we create distance between ourselves and the other, right? Yeah. We'll put it that way. Uh, then you start to have a lot more fear or dis- mistrust or things. And I think the survey shows that. Which, before we move on, Protestants were slightly higher at 15%, not, not 40 45%. Oh, okay. Uh, number two, most Muslims have favorable or neutral views of evangelical Christians, but the feeling isn't mutual. While a half of Muslims reported no opinion when asked about evangelical Christians, a third had a favorable opinion and only 14% unfavorable. Meanwhile, just 20% of white evangelicals indicated they had a favorable opinion of Muslims, 
with 44% unfavorable. White evangelicals also scored the highest and Jews the lowest on the National Islamophobia Index created by ISPU in partnership with Georgetown University's The Bridge Initiative. Only 21% of the general public has favorable views of Muslims. When measuring favorability of those who know a Muslim, however, the rating jumps to 47% and increases again to 57% if that Muslim is considered a good friend. Mm. Number three. White evangelicals and Muslims in the survey rank highest for piety. Uh, White evangelicals and Muslims were the most devoted to their faith when asked about personal religious beliefs and practices in the ISPU survey. They are far more likely than others to consider their religion important to daily life. Uh, 82% of the evangelicals, 71% of the Muslims said so. Protestants reported a 61% positive response. Catholics and Jews were both at 35%. So this kind of linking of piety is interesting. Right. Number four, Muslims report more religious discrimination, but evangelicals are more likely to say something about it. That's interesting. A majority of Muslims say they experience discrimination, 62% compared to 43% of Jews, 37% of white evangelicals, and 27% of uh, each Catholic and Protestants. Muslims are also twice as likely as any other faith to say they experience discrimination on a regular basis. Though they experience different levels of discrimination, Muslims and evangelicals are about as likely to identify with those in their faith who suffer discrimination. 55% of Muslims and 57% of white evangelicals expressed experiencing this, quote, linked faith. White evangelicals speak out the most about the discrimination they experience, though. Asked if they would take unpopular stance to defend their faith, 78% said yes. Jews ranked second at 72%, Protestants third at 64%. Muslims only slightly outright Catholics at 56% and 54% respectively. Yeah, and there was a great article, I think we discussed it a week or two ago, uh, that said that this is a great common ground for evangelicals and Muslims is this kind of we're both facing, you know, a little more pushback in our culture and that, that there could be some great grounds made uh, by linking arms. Number five, white evangelicals want religious law more than Muslims. ISPU asked respondents if their religion should be the main source or a source or not a source of U.S. law. Despite mm-hmm. some Americans fears over Sharia law, half of Muslims, 51 percent, said not at all, uh, while white evangelicals it was 27 uh, percent said the same. Uh, most evangelicals who said the 54 percent said they wanted their religion to be a source uh, of U.S. law. So I think what this survey really shows in its totality mm. is just a lot of misperceptions. Uh, and uh, the sad thing is, I think it's a, it's a principle that's important about just not knowing the people that you speak out against or or that you have fear of or whatever else. Right? You could you could oh, probably do this same survey about racism yeah. right, or about. Uh, poverty or about other things. And there is just such an important point here about actually getting to know people outside of your bubble, outside of your tribe. Well, here's how it ends. The uh, according to the authors of this report says our data suggests that Islamophobia is more politically driven than religious in nature. Simply knowing a Muslim still cuts one's likelihood of negative perceptions in half in half. Mm. I think that's so important. Uh, create opportunities for face-to-face human interaction between people of different religions and cultural backgrounds while cooperating for the greater good. That obviously is a charge that I'm in favor of. Yep. And I think it's easier said than done, but it's worth actually doing. If this, 
if this is actually as big an issue as this report is saying, and based on my experience in Dearborn, my gut says it is, mm. uh, this is worth, I think, and you and I have talked about even being, you know, quote, professional Christians. Yeah. Sometimes it can be really easy to just simply swim in a stream that's familiar to us. And I think that's a really, really important charge Absolutely. To, to do the hard work of actually looking a little bit outside Build your bubble. Bridges, yeah. And hopefully that actually can, you know, contribute to making this a better world. Well, coming up next, we do this every Monday, and we're going to talk about what did you preach, but not just what did you preach. We're going to kind of unpack it and dissect a little bit how we felt about it, kind of mm-hmm. get into the uh, scary place of a pastor's brain <laughs> uh, post-sermon. Yes. So that's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I'm not going to lie, I kind of like that song. I just want to keep doing this segment just for that song every time. (laughs) I'm not even really that familiar with John Legend, but when we were preparing to kind of make this a regular part of the show, I just sort of Googled, oh, songs about preaching. And this was like the top hit. And I was sort of like, okay. Okay, we're on to (laughs) something This doesn't sound like us at all. That song is way cooler than we are. But uh, I do appreciate that we got a little bit of of John Legend in the show. Well, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, or 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. And if you are just joining the show, uh, let me fill you in a little bit on some of the context. So Brian and I are both uh, local church pastors here in Chicagoland, which uh, will unavoidably, I think, inform some of the stuff that we talk about or the ways that we see the world. One of the things that has been fun slash scary slash bizarre for us to do on Mondays is to sort of look back a little bit Mm -hmm. because we, we often have just preached a number of sermons and uh this may come as a surprise but preaching is a very weird thing to do (laughs) and most pastors are at least a little bit insecure Mm -hmm. so there's always this sort of like the process afterwards but there's not usually an environment for pastors to then you just got to move on to the next sermon yeah so we've kind of dedicated a uh, a recurring segment here talking about what did you preach and what did it feel like and uh pastor brian what was it like at Four Corners Community Church yesterday. Yeah, yesterday was interesting. I, I took a little bit of a of a different take for us, and we finished First John last week, and I'm starting the book of Daniel next week, but I wanted to have a one-week buffer in order to just kind of talk about the church. Like, what's my hope? What is our hope of who we will be as a church? Uh, and uh, talked about what is the difference uh, between surviving and thriving just in life, right? Like, so many of us just try to survive all the time, but what's it look like to thrive? And so... Uh, I, I ended up landing on two things that I hope for myself and for the individuals in the church and for us collectively as a church. And I, I, I positioned it this way. I, I, my prayer is that we would uh, accept an invitation and that invitation out of, I used Psalm 30, 34 um, where, where that verse that says taste and see that the Lord is good. And I talked about that we're often in churches good about knowing a lot about God, but we don't really long to know him. We don't really long to enter into his presence. And I talked about what would it look like to be people increasingly passionate about entering into the presence of God, where that Mm -hmm. drove us, where we came with that expectation when we gathered together, whether it be on Sunday morning or in small groups. Uh, And so I talked about that. And then I talked about uh, out of Ephesians three, when Paul says, uh, now basically describes God as being able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine through his power uh, at work in us. And I basically just put the question out there that I think we all struggle with. I said, is that still available today? Hmm. Like, does that power still work? Is it still at play? Or do we dream that way? Do we plan that way? Do right. we expect that way in our neighborhoods, in our church? 
And I kind of confessed to them. I said, after 10 years, you can lose your dreaming ability hmm. uh, and just kind of try to survive as a church. And so um, I, I felt good about it. I felt like it was a message I needed to hear. <laughs> so yeah, I get that. Uh, and so hopefully our people needed to hear it. And uh, you ever have those? You preach multiple services. We have two services. And after the first one, I literally was like, man, that felt flat. And after the second mm. one, I was like, killed it. <laughs> like oh, it, really? It felt so different to me. <laughs> uh, and so it was good. We had another exciting experience yesterday. We just hired a uh, new children's ministry director and nice. were able to introduce her to the church yesterday, which That's is awesome. always fun. So I felt good about it. Uh, these Those one-offs for me are always a little odd because they're those are more from just kind of your own brain, like where right. you're at. And you they feel a little more vulnerable and a little bit more like... Uh, I don't know if I'm the only one who needs to hear this, uh, but now next I feel week, that way all the time. I know. So next week we're going to dump jump into the book of Daniel, which is going to take us a while. I've done an Old Testament book in a while, so I'm excited to do that. And uh, yeah, all in all, uh, I can't complain. It was a good morning. How about how about at Community Christian Church? Were you, were you at the Yellow Box yesterday? I was not. No, yeah. I was at our Lincoln Park location okay. in the city, and uh, we started a new series called "This Changes Everything." Uh, so we introed it talking about those like late night infomercial mm. things that we see. And like during the day, they seem ridiculous, but late at night, you're like, I do need a knife that can cut a penny. That's, that's <laughs> this, this would change everything. We talked about how, you know, you, you sometimes buy into not just with like as seen on TV gimmicks, but yep. sometimes in life, like, Oh, if I could just make this much money or if I could just have this relationship or just get this promotion, that would change everything. And we, we just I think there's a desperation in all of us. In fact, uh, Henry David Thoreau said the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Mm. And I kind of said, I think that's where a lot of us live, to be honest. Like we we experience this constantly and no one really talks about it. Not often. So we we want to talk a little bit about what, what does it mean to, you know, everyone has a desire for love. Everyone has a desire for purpose. Everyone has a desire for meaning. Yep. And then where we kind of turned it a little bit was. And have you ever found that like just praying a prayer doesn't necessarily make those things go away? Mm. Like it, because a lot of times well-meaning Christians are like, oh, you just need a personal relationship with Jesus. Yeah. And uh, in some ways, that's a very dramatic transformation. But in other ways, somebody prayed a prayer, they got baptized or they checked a box and they still struggled. Yeah. And we talked about these kind of two competing kingdoms. But what we talked about was what if what if this sort of like cross a line doctrine and theology isn't the fullness of what Jesus actually talked about. And sociologists talk about a, a bounded set versus a centered set. So mm-hmm. like a bounded set, we had a, you know, a graph, you had, something is in or out yep. based on the parameters of the set. So we talked about this in and out Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm on the outside, I prayed a prayer. Now I'm in that's, you know, a, a triangle can never be more squarey and a square can never be more triangly. <laughs> I got the yeah. rules that define what's, what's in and what's out. And, with a centered set, it's much more about are you heading uh, away or toward the center? And mm-hmm. this idea of apprenticing Jesus means to actually be like walking in communion with him. And we mm-hmm. use the, you know, this phrase the the rabbis would use to be covered in the dust of your rabbi, right? To walk so closely behind that like you're you're literally being transformed through how you live toward Jesus, not just this, oh, I'm in, I'm saved. Yeah. And the the really scandalous thing that Jesus preaches a lot actually is that the kingdom of heaven is here. It's it's now. It's not mm. just this place we get sucked out of earth when we die, yep. right? This, what does it mean to actually declare the kingdom of heaven here and now? Like that's in the Lord's prayer, right? Yep. On earth as it is in heaven. And he's 
often saying really peculiar things about like these kids. These kids are actually much closer than than yeah. you are. And I I like what John Ortberg says. He says Jesus. Good news. His gospel is simply this. The kingdom of God has now through Jesus become available for ordinary human beings to live in. It's here now. You can live in it if you want to. Mm. And that's so different than what I think a lot of us were particularly handed uh, as kids. But when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. He doesn't point us to the way. He's like, it's it's me. I'm the bread. You just preach through uh, first John. So there's this uh, this real sense that I think it's easy for us to miss the heaven right now mm. language. And a lot of times it just becomes like, I need to cross this line so that I go to the good place instead yeah. of the bad place when I die. So I, I felt, I felt really good about it. I yeah. knew it was going to be a little controversial for some people, but I feel like the, the invitation to apprentice Jesus is one that is just always so important. It's not just Absolutely. about crossing a line. It's not just about like checking a box. It's about actually like a full life surrender. And I think that's, that's always important to do. Oh, that's good. That's good. I also uh, was able to use a uh, prop yesterday, a, a oh, piece yeah? of Portillo's chocolate cake. And, uh, <laughs> and that, that I think just kind of engaged everyone, but then I lost them because they were just staring at the cake. Longingly. <laughs> I threw out candy once Did uh, you? and I accidentally got like the king size of all the, not accidentally, foolishly. <laughs> and I almost like took out a lady in the back. I like chucked a big old, Kit Kat, and I like threw like a frisbee, not realizing that's that's like throwing a shingle in, into the audience, and uh, I haven't done that since. That's really funny. That's funny. Yeah, I used the chocolate cake to say I could tell you a lot about this cake, or I could hand you a fork. Like yeah, one right. of the two, right? And everyone's like, "Please just give me a fork yeah. right now." And I was like, <laughs> "Why are you still go. talking, Pastor Brian? Yeah. Give us the give fork." Us the fork. So it was good. I'm glad to hear that we both enjoyed preaching. But yeah, it is always. Uh, it's always fun to talk about them on Monday morning because you realize, like, yeah, I, 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 this is what I wanted people to hear. Right. This is what I wanted them to know. It'd be really interesting to bring in people from our churches. Like, what did you hear yesterday? That's what I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if people from our churches are listening and be like, that's not what you said. That's, that's not at all what I heard yesterday. That's what you thought the sermon was about? <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, here's a, a conversation, a topic that I think is important to both of us. 14 questions to ask yourself before engaging in tough conversations. Yeah. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. One of the things that I appreciate about this show and the Facebook page and all the other places we interact is that there's a pretty rich diversity of theological leanings, political leanings, experience, parts of the country, parts of the world even, which has been, we've been doing the show since what, January? January, yes. It's been fascinating. The people that will reach out or they'll suggest a counter argument or a counter perspective and uh, I do just want to let you know that we really appreciate it, actually. That's that's how we get better as a show yeah. is people sending us stuff and weighing in on stuff. You'll notice like when we post, especially if it's like a controversial article, uh, the comment thread is so interesting because yep. it's people that don't know each other in real life. They're either friends of ours or yep. someone that's found the page. But they'll sometimes have really important dialogue, which I think when I watch that, I think, okay, here's a dialogue that maybe otherwise wouldn't yeah. be happening. And we just get to benefit from watching it happen, yeah. which I really, really appreciate, which it's why I like articles like this. 14 questions to ask yourself before engaging in tough conversations. I know 14 is a lot. So if you're driving or whatever, maybe make note of two, to start, <laughs> yeah. start with two, find but, the ones that jump out. Yeah. Probably can't do all 14, but maybe you can. And uh, it opens up like this. Expressing one's political views on social media these days is like dropping bloody fish guts into a shark tank. <laughs> it's downright scary at times, which I've seen. That's a, that's a good picture. It's a that's great a picture. picture right there. <laughs> that's why I often sit out these exchanges. But I've seen brothers and sisters in Christ trash each other often. 
I cringe every time I see some iteration of, you're a smart guy, take down this garbage. Could there be a better way? I hope so. Jesus said that without unity, we, the church, cannot be effective witnesses to the world. With that in mind, here are some questions to ask ourselves as we engage in these difficult but necessary conversations. So there's 14 of them. Let's just fly through the 14 and we'll kind of stop along the way if any really kind of speak to us. But Brian Fromm, why don't you, uh, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I'm excited to read these because I've told you this before. I'm not one who likes to engage in tough conversations. That's true. And yeah. so uh, hopefully this is encouraging. Number one, uh, is my objective simply to make a point or to point people to Christ? So again, this is from Relevant Magazine, we should point out. Yeah, the author is uh, Karina Phillip. Yep. Is my objective simply to make a point or to point people to Christ? Number two. Uh, am I regarding the person I dis- disagree with as a fellow image bearer of God? I think that's really that's actually super important because it's, huge. it's hard to really denigrate somebody when you are remembering at the forefront. Like, oh, this is like someone that God loves. Yeah, it makes it harder to be mean. Absolutely. It goes back to our earlier conversation a little bit about about Christians and Muslims. Uh, yes, right. The difference that happens as you know, people as uh-huh. they have a role in your life or you see them for. Not just kind of this group. Yeah, Number right. three, are the things we agree on of more consequence than the things we disagree about? This is a huge one yeah, for me huge. because people so often run to their corners. Like I'm, you know, let's take a political argument like uh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. And like we can't be in community with each other. Right. Like, well, there are bigger things than that. Yes, totally. Uh, number four. What if neither of us has a full grasp on all the issues and we need each other to see a more complete picture? What a novel idea. Social media doesn't work that way. (laughs) (laughs) I totally disagree, though. Like, I've watched some of the comments on articles we post and I've I've seen people at at their best say to someone else, you know what? I actually never thought about that. Or that's a great point. Or thanks for calling out the source of the thing I posted or whatever. Like, I think it really can happen. Yep. Number five. Can I acknowledge the inherent conflict, tension, and trade-offs of siding with any political party? Ooh, snap. Uh, Number six, can we acknowledge that no political party has a monopoly on what we believe, that in some cases it's not as simple as this versus that? We should probably pause on that one. Yeah, that's good. No political party has a monopoly on what we believe. Yeah, like let's get our daily uh, mention of Scott Sauls in here, right? Scott (laughs) Sauls, pastor in Tennessee, who wrote a great book about this. Uh, often says if you're not as a Christian getting kind of getting uh, shots from both sides uh, of the political spectrum, then you're probably doing it wrong and your kingdom is wrong. Mm. Uh, that's what this one is getting at here. Uh, number seven, can we work together outside of the current political environment to demonstrate the love of Christ and improve things in our country? Uh, number eight, Am I placing my culture, my region, traditions, or any other affiliation or ideology above identification with Christ and what he commands? I feel like that's a really important one. Yeah, that's solid. Uh, Number nine, am I defending the truth of God's word or striving to preserve power, wealth, and entitlements that favor me above others? Number 10. Are you starting to feel convicted here? Yeah, these these are... Really hard hitting. Number 10, (laughs) has my personal apathy and compromise uh, contributed to our country's current societal ills? Number 11, is my aversion to our leadership so acute that it impedes me from obeying the biblical commands to honor, 1 Peter 2, verse 17, and pray for our leaders, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 3? Three more. Uh, is my defense of our leadership so unequivocal 
that it impedes me from obeying the biblical command to speak up and defend the rights of the weak and destitute. Proverbs mm-hmm. chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 3. Uh, two more. Can I call out any unbiblical views my brother or sister might have in humility and in love? Mm. And lastly, can I accept being called out for any unbiblical views I might have in humility and love? Dang, those are preach, man. So those are good. Which ones of those stand out to you uh, as you read through those and think about, especially our current social media environment? I I think the coupling of, I, I don't think we gave the numbers, 11 and 12, right? So is my aversion to our leadership so acute that it impedes me from obeying the commands to honor and pray for our leaders, right? So the one on the one hand, we're saying, uh, am I so, do I despise our leadership so much that I, I just can't uphold these commands to honor and pray for our leaders? And then for the next one to say, um, do I just blindly defend our leaders to yep. the point that it's impeding me from obeying the command to speak yep. up on behalf of the weak and the destitute, the poor, the marginalized, the exploited. So it's really kind of saying both like, do you have such a huge log in your eye? Yeah. You couldn't even possibly conceive of praying for our leaders or, are you are you are you so in love with our leadership that you you don't maybe necessarily have the spine yep. to call out corruption to call out yep. like the speaking truth to power thing and I think uh, the way that the the way that she's words these I think is so um, even handed yeah and it's it seems pretty clear that she's wanting to kind of build bridges and not just it doesn't seem like she's got a really obvious angle here yeah like here's just some things that have been helpful for me to process through for the goal of actually having better, richer dialogue, which I think you and I are are both fans of. Yeah. And the ones that stand out to me are kind of the first ones that really uh, talk about uh, so much, especially of social media and the argument arguments that we get in are about winning and making a point. Uh, I'm constantly forgetting. What's your Andy Stanley quote? You used it like twice last week. Never make a point at the expense of making a difference. Exactly. And it feels like that's what this author is getting at a little bit here that, that when we forget that the other person we're arguing with or trying to make a point at uh, is a person who has feelings and uh, has a background and this and that, then uh, when they become just nameless faces, like just in, an, in a Facebook fight, in a Facebook argument, uh, you might win the argument and end up you know, losing the opportunity to make a relationship, make a right. difference, and all of those things. Those are important to me. Uh, is my objective simply to make a point or to point people to Christ? Like That is such... That's a huge deal right there. Well, and I like, too, that it's, I mean, there are a couple of these require a high level of self-awareness, right? So mm-hmm. am I placing my culture, my religion, traditions, or any other affiliation or ideology above my identif- identification with Christ? I think most people, their knee-jerk would say, no, of course not. Yeah. So that's where some of these questions, like the heat kind of gets cranked up, like, yep. okay, but if they are, though, if that is happening, do we have the humility to let someone speak that into us, right? Yeah. Like the idea that... No political party has a monopoly on what we believe. I think most people, most cognizant adults would say, no, of course not. But then you actually look at our behavior yeah. or our rhetoric and maybe maybe the data would say otherwise, which I think is super, super important. And that's why I appreciate this show, to be honest. I appreciate our opportunity to engage with people who look and talk and act and think and vote differently yeah. than we do, because I think that's how we get better. Well, coming up next in the second hour, so apparently Chance the Rapper and Kanye West have been talking a lot of Jesus lately. I want to dive a little deeper into that. We're going to talk about how uh, Gen Z is actually making us better preachers. And a Harvard professor says that the truth lies in the data. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you like
It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. That clicking noise is Brian Fromm. Did that come on? <laughs> it did. I, well, sometimes I just sing along to the music that's you, coming on. You did. Was that your metronome? That was your it inner was. metronome for the, for the song? I want just a collection of those noises from the last seven or eight months. <laughs> just Brian Fromm's nervous ticks. It's I probably not even nervous. I just heard the music and I was kind of... I just kind of forgot where I was. Just kind of clicked along with it. This is the common good, Brian Fromm. Yep. No, on, I'm now, now, now on I am eleven sixty. Hope you're alive. I'm locked in. <laughs> I'm locked in. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, eleven sixty hope dot com, and uh, we talked a little earlier about. The idea of like Christian celebrities, which mm-hmm. I, is not new. I totally get that. We even talked a couple weeks ago about The Righteous Gemstones, this uh, HBO show, kind of poking fun at some of the some of the Christian celebrityism that can, you know, turn pretty dark pretty quickly. Right. We talked about Kirk Cameron, and he's launched a new show where, you know, he's going to interview uh, a bunch of his Christian celebrity friends, people that I imagine that he has some kind of personal relationship right, with. Right. But another thing that I've noticed is that anytime someone in the like quote unquote secular media anytime they say anything kind of christianly or mm-hmm. or even more overt than that like the collective church seems to like stand up and cheer like he's one of ours you yeah, know yeah, i think yeah. of like you know chris pratt from a year ago and oh, yeah. other times artists you know that make it big or you know like lauren daigle is kind of breaking into the mainstream and i'm i'm really always kind of interested in our uh our obsession or at the very least interest with celebrity Christians in whatever sphere they may be. But uh, I saw over the weekend a couple of interesting stories. And the first is about Chicago's own Chance the Rapper. He was Mm -hmm. on uh, the Ellen show. And he said that Jesus is actually the reason that he gives back to his community. So I want you to hear a little bit from him personally. And then I want to get some of your reactions. Why is it important for you to to give back? Uh, I think... All right, so why is it important? Uh, so my understanding of a lot of stuff is based on uh, Jesus. So, like, Jesus teaches to be, like, you know, to care for your neighbor and care for people that aren't necessarily your blood but still a part of your body because we're all humans. And so, like, I think it's that's an impactful thing that I think I understood more as I got older. But my parents, since I was young, definitely instilled in me to, like, you know, when you see people that are in need, uh, you know, you don't just want to pass them by. You want to try and, you know, do something beneficial to them before you leave. Because that's your imprint. So I guess it's my a mixture of my parents and Jesus would be my answer. Uh-huh. Good inspiration. I don't know. All right. So what do you think about that? Uh, it's impressive, man. Like, uh, to go to be uh, as big a brand let's as he is and to go on a show that's watched by tens of millions of people. Ellen has a big audience. Uh, and to be asked, why do you do this? It would be totally understandable to dodge that question, right? And so I do I do think that some of these celebrities who hold to their faith uh, do face a little more pressure in terms of like, uh, like that's that's gutsy. Like if you picture yourself sitting on that couch with Ellen and she's like, hey, why do you do this? You know, there's that inner monologue in your mind going, I don't know. Do I say it or don't I say it right now? Do I say it? And I, so I'm impressed and that's great again. Uh, and it doesn't hold up Chance the Rapper is perfect. It doesn't hold up, uh, you know, everything he does is great. Who knows? I, I don't know. 
Um, but what it does say is like he was he was confident enough to say, hey, this is why I help people. He's living out his faith. And then he's he's telling people why he's doing it. We often preach on these things, right? Like love on people. And then when they ask for the reason of to why you're doing this, uh, talk about Jesus. So good for him. Let me uh, let me share with you the end of this article. It says chances awakening came after he completed his Grammy award winning album coloring book during a time while he and his then girlfriend, now wife. Kirsten were separated during a recent interview with Queen Radio on Apple Music's Beats One hosted by Nicki Minaj. Chance got candid and said his wife, quote, saved him by abstaining from sex. My wife literally saved my life by becoming celibate and going and getting baptized. He said, admitting that before he witnessed her commitment to faith, he never really knew where his strength came from. This is all after coloring book, after I proclaimed that I love Jesus and all that stuff he revealed. You're Never fully, fully sanctified, so I had to keep figuring it out. I had to do the Grammys by myself. I had to do a lot by myself. Uh, then when my girl, who is also the mother of his child, was gracious enough to have me back, it changed my whole life. Oh. I just think that is that is a pretty compelling, interesting, and I'm, I'm curious to see where the rest of his journey goes. Absolutely. In other celebrity news, uh, Kim Kardashian tells the view that Kanye West is born again and saved by Christ. And here's what she had to say. Kanye started this, um, I think, just to heal himself and made it. It was a really personal thing, and it was just friends and family. And he has had an amazing evolution of being born again and being saved by Christ. And he has now um, made it. You know, people always ask, well, what are you worshiping and what is this? It is a Christian service, like a musical ministry. It is, you know, they, they talk about Jesus and God and... Is there a minister sing. there? Sometimes. So if okay. he goes to a different church where he has, they've shown up and mm-hmm. done these surprise little pop-up Sunday services at other churches. So whatever pastor speaks there. Um, and sometimes at the one in Calabasas, he'll have friends that are pastors that are in town get up and speak. But for the most part, it's just a musical ministry. Um, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't have his like 501-3C yet, but, um, you know, to make it an official church. But it is um, for God and, and it's a Christian church. I think that was sometimes people are like, well, what is this and what are they, what are they doing? But it started off healing for him and now it's become something that he just really wants to share for everybody else. I think that that is, uh, it's just wild. When we first talked about Kanye West Sunday things, I think I at least just bashed the heck out of it. <laughs> like This is like, you, you see this caricature of Kanye West that may or may not be true that he's borderline crazy, right? And he, who knows what, what uh, struggles he has. But I remember when we talked about it the first time being like, this is nuts. And this is like, just kind of self-promotion. I remember talking about him selling things. Man, I, I don't know. I've come at this stage of my life to try to take things at face value. And what she said is pretty impressive. Like, is everything, you know, theologically sound? I don't know. But when, uh, you know, when, when she talks about uh, he's been born again and he had an awakening and he's uh, this was for other people, but then it changed him. Uh, there seems like a cool evolution going on, you know, Uh who knows what what the next what the next chapter of this book is going to be? But man, I think it sounds pretty cool. Well, let me uh, let me play for you a little bit of his actual service. I think that's probably helpful to get just a little bit of context about what's going on there. You sent your only son, and you sent your only son to die for us, and all you ask is for radical obedience to you. 
We're not asking. You're not asking us to do the least. You know, people are like, well, at least I... How are we going to do the least when he did the most? So I'm not going to lie. For him to go after obedience, that's something that a lot of, like, ordained ministers don't go after, right? It 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 sounds like, at least based on that very, very short clip, it's yeah. not just all puppy dogs and rainbows. He's saying, yeah, well, yeah, what he asks from us is radical obedience. Now, how he actually fleshes out what that obedience looks like, that that's probably anyone's guess. But I, I do have to say, though, there was something, I mean, just listening to it, that sounded like a church. If you didn't recognize Kanye's voice, yeah. you like hear the choir and the crowd and the organ and the, there's something to, hey, uh, he didn't ask us to do the least because he did the most. And now, I, there's, there's something to that that's like a little uh, guilty, right? That's maybe not necessarily the tactic that either of us would take, but I appreciate his willingness to kind of go after more than just simply like clouds in the sky types of types of sentiment. And I guess where I am with the whole celebrity culture is like so often we just kind of bash them and say, oh, it's just about marketing and themselves. Like, I think what he's saying, like, let's give him a chance. Right. Let's uh, uh, let's uh, see where this spins off. But like you said, when I read these articles about them. I never thought I would say this, but, you know, <laughs> I, I kind of agree with a lot of what he's saying. He seems to be have his heart in the right spot. God seems to be doing work in his heart. And, you know, if we're like, oh, you know, it's just a celebrity Kanye West. Well, then what does that say about what we believe about the power of Jesus to transform lives? So yeah. let's pray for him and let's see where this ends up. And I think it's I mean, obviously, that's a good challenge in general. But uh, I appreciate you saying, yeah, when we talked about this, I had all sorts of negative things to oh, say. I killed it. <laughs> and we probably did about Bieber as well and other previous Christian celebrities, at least when they kind of first came out as such. And I think at the very least, you know, if Kanye or Chance or Bieber, if if they're using their platform in any way to actually point people to the real risen Jesus. Yes. I'm I'm for it. And obviously they're not going to do it perfect, but here's the truth. We're not doing it perfectly either. No. You know what I mean? Like there is something to me that thinks, all right, if a whole another generation or whole community of people that otherwise wouldn't are at least being introduced to Jesus, I think that's a win. I think that's worth celebrating. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, I want to talk about this. I don't even think I could say this without stuttering. Here we go. Uh, I want to talk about statistical illiteracy Hmm. from a Harvard professor. We're going to take a deep dive into what does it mean to actually look at the data. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm uh, here on this. Uh, be blessed. <laughs> he's wearing full vestments right now. That's why I felt uh, inclined to give him the right Reverend. Yes. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. We're a little saucier on Twitter. If you if you want the saucier version. There's truth to that. You want the Facebook page, but with some spice, with some... Yep. Uh, some uh, jalapenos. That is the Twitter. <laughs> Wait till we get an Instagram. That, whoa. Oh, boy. No one needs off that. The no. chains, then. <laughs> okay, so so this is a story. This is an article that, I, for, for me, at least in a lot of ways, we've done stories where I imagine it would be interesting to go back even to look at stuff that we did in January, February, mm-hmm. and see how that story developed or even how our opinions of that perspective developed because I think that's part of what it means to be in the world is you're you're always kind of poking and prodding. Yeah, we've talked about this before. Sermons that you preached 15 years ago, you would probably go back and look at it and go, I'd make some major edits to yep. this. I would say something different about this thing. And that, that doesn't mean that you're like on some kind of shaky theological ground. You're yep. like, you're growing and you're learning. And hopefully 15 years from now, 
you're saying the same thing, yep. right? And I think yep. I mean, we, you and I both share that, right? Absolutely. Can I just real fast? Because we're going to jump into a deep article here. Sure. I had the strangest thing looking back in an old sermon this week. Oh, boy. I printed it up. It was about something that was kind of had a point in it that I knew I was making this week. So I was trying to see what I said then. And it was from like 2007. Or it was way back. Dark 2008. Ages. And uh, in it, I used the example of like celebrity and power, this, this kind of uh, viewing people in power. Yeah. And I said... Think about the president of the United States or maybe think about Donald Trump on The Apprentice. And it was the no I read it. I was kidding. like, whoa, <laughs> sorry, that's a total tangent. But you just reminded me of that, of looking You're at a fortune sermons. teller. It was so weird to read. Like, that's how we viewed back then. And now that. Wow. Crazy. That's so interesting. All right. So this is from uh, Harvard.edu. Harvard professor Steven Pinker says the truth lies in the data. Just for some context, Steven Pinker is an experimental cognitive psychologist and popular writer on language, mind, and human nature. His books include The Language Instinct and How the Mind Works and The Blank Slate. So, dude's got some credentials. He's got some some, uh, badges, yeah. So, here's the question. What is one thing wrong with the world and what... uh, Holy cow, can I start over? Go for it. (laughs) What is one thing wrong with the world that you would change and why? There, I nailed it. Yep. Uh, too many leaders and influencers, including politicians, journalists, intellectuals, and academics, surrender to the cognitive bias of assessing the world through anecdotes and images rather than data and facts. Pause. Yes. Do you resonate with that? Uh, completely. What's I, a good example? Um, I think, and he's going to get it. You and I have had the ability to read through this already, but I think he's going to get into some examples. But one of them is, um, you know, uh, stories of uh, a police shooting, let's say. Okay, let's dump and in, jump into the deep end. And therefore, people saying all police are bad, as opposed to saying, well, what is what is actual the statistics about um, about uh, police crime or or what police are doing? And then we have these all over. Whether it be uh, we all take stories that we've heard that kind of further our political. Uh, thoughts, things that we already believe, our biases to kind of further them. And what he's saying is, hey, we for a lot of this stuff, we have statistics and facts that we can go to, we can hang on, and uh, we can use. So I, I think this is part of the area you were just referencing. The question was, how do we change this destructive statistical literacy and disdain for data? I don't. I don't actually know that there's disdain for data. I think right. people just legitimately don't know how to get it, or how to read to it, or where it. to find it, yep. who to trust. How many times have we seen someone post something on Facebook and then the first comment under it is, that's actually not true, yep. but the article stays up and for whatever reason, we're like, ah, the point's still true. And you're like, yep. yeah, but the conclusion's wrong and not factual yep. because for the record, and I know that you were just making an anecdotal comment, I don't know anyone ever who said all police officers are bad. Yeah. And I, uh, anywhere, I, I, I mean, do, like I'm doing the problem of going overstating, but it's uh, but it's like, hey, we post this to kind of drive this point that there's this huge problem and maybe there is a huge problem, but I don't think our huge problems are defined in any of the ways by this one story. Right. He's instead saying, let's find the data. Let's mine the data and decide, is there a huge problem with right. issue X or not? Well, okay. So again, the question is how do we change this destructive statistical literacy and disdain for data? It says one death from a self-driving Tesla makes worldwide headlines, but the 1.25 million deaths each year from human driven vehicles don't small children are traumatized by school drills that teach them how to hide from 
rampage shooters who have uh, an infinitesimal chance of killing them compared with car crashes, drownings, or for that matter, non-rampage killers who slay the equivalent of a Sandy Hook and a half every day. Several heavily publicized police shootings have persuaded activists and minorities and are in, the, are in mortal danger from racist cops, where he's uh, three analyses, uh, two by a Harvard faculty, uh, have shown no racial bias in police shootings at all. Many people are convinced that the country is irredeemably racist, sexist, homophobic, and sexually assaultive, whereas there, uh, all these scourges are in steady decline, albeit not quickly enough. People on both the right and the left have become cynical about global institutions because they think that the world is becoming poorer and more war-torn, whereas in recent decades, global measures of extreme poverty and battle deaths have plummeted. So I'm curious... Mm. Does that surprise you? Like based on, and again, this guy's not really citing any sources. So we're probably not doing the thing that we're saying everyone should be doing. Um, But the very fact that it comes from Harvard, I think is significant Do those findings surprise you at all. What do you think? They don't, uh, or just this trend to, uh, because that's what we do, right? We hear these stories or, or we get these narratives, not even a story, but we get these narratives and then we we put all this weight of truthfulness on them. And of course, that's then going to skew us to go, well, every, you know, our country's terribly racist or all men are doing this or, or all police are doing this. Uh, and that narrative runs, like you said before, uh, before the truth can catch up to it. Yeah. Uh, and so, no, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I find some of these helpful. Like you said, I don't necessarily know his sources, but. It, it does, I do find it helpful uh, and honestly somewhat surprising to me when he says recent decades, global measures of extreme poverty and battle deaths or other things are plummeting. I'm like, oh, OK, uh, that makes me feel a little bit less um, a less negative and pessimistic. But I do think uh, this is a challenge, right? It's a challenge, especially in the social media world where any of us can share anything at any time. It can become easy to create a narrative. And he's saying, allow your narratives to be driven by truthful uh, data, yeah. uh, by, by actual numbers. But you know what? I'm, I mean, numbers aren't as sexy as the stories are right. uh, and the narratives are. And like you said, it can be really hard to even mine those numbers and figure out how to even have access to them. Well, here, here's how he ends it. People are terrified of nuclear power, the most scalable form of carbon-free energy, because of images of Three Mile Island, which killed no one. Fukushima, which killed no one. The deaths were caused by the tsunami and a panicked, unnecessary evacuation. And Chernobyl, which killed fewer people than are killed by coal every day. They imagine that fossil fuels can be replaced by solar energy without doing the math on how many square miles would have to be tiled with solar panels to satisfy the world's vastly growing thirst for electricity. And they think that voluntar- uh, voluntary sacrifices like unplugging laptop chargers are a sensible way to deal with climate change. Hmm. How do we change the destructive statistical literacy and disdain for data. We need to make factfulness an inherent part of the culture of education, journalism, commentary, and politics. An awareness of the infirmity of unaided human uh, intuition should be a part of the conventional wisdom of every educated person. Guiding policy or activism by conspicuous events without reference to data should come to be seen as risable as guiding them by omens, dreams, or whether Jupiter Mm -hmm. is rising in Sagittarius, which... I think is an important charge. This yeah. is a very uh, kind of academic posture to take, and it doesn't really factor in that sometimes gut and emotion can be right. You know, yeah. There are certainly times that will someone just feels something, and if someone like you know has empathic sort of capacities, they can often feel yeah. stuff before the data is there. Um, but I think it's an important charge, especially as you're saying, in a world that seems less and less interested yeah. or less and less capable. Less and less, I think literate might be the right word. I yeah. think people want – no one is willingly sharing, I think, 
falsities just on purpose just to hurt people or just uh i just think we often don't know how to get the right information yeah and i think one of the struggles is that um some places of real influence are probably sharing falsities on purpose so yeah for half truths whether it be uh you know on either side of the aisle in our political debates whether it be you know you could watch two different news networks and they can say completely different things about the same things well they're, they're pushing an agenda and that's what makes it even harder so you know if you buy into that then you kind of buy into the agenda and you kind of perpetuate it but i really like his call here for factfulness yeah. uh, that we need to teach our kids at a young age to to go for the facts that we need to yeah, journalism would be wonderful. Commentary, both the pulpit, politics, all sorts of different places. And I, that's a good caveat, too, because I think it is worth saying my statement about people not really, I think, wanting to willfully spread misinformation. That's more like the individual level. Agreed. Obviously, companies and political parties, I think, are are way, way beyond yep. uh, deception and half-truths and all that. And again, I'm not even speaking for all people. I think there are probably plenty of individuals that just get a kick out of stirring up controversy. Yep. And that's, you know, their prerogative, but it's not all that helpful. Uh, coming up next, Gen Z is making me a better preacher. We've talked about this a couple of ways that I think if the church wants to actually engage with the generation that's coming up next, uh, that's got to involve some changes on our part. And uh, I just think this article is a fascinating take on what are some ways that we can actually do that. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I mentioned it earlier, so this article is called Gen Z is Making Me a Better Preacher. And again, as a quick aside, I think this can apply to a lot of people. Like, you and I are both preachers, Mm -hmm. but sometimes people will ask, like, why do you do stories about preaching? And I'm like, it's about leadership, and it's about being in the world. So if you need to replace the word preaching with leading or coaching or serving or just getting to know Gen Z, yeah, how right. they think is helping me if I'm not a Gen Z, like, which we all should, this. by the way, yeah, you like, can apply this across the board. It's not just about like, Oh, I want my church to reach oh. this demographic. Like, I think we all should care about like, what are the ways that we can better engage the yep. people that are coming behind us? That's a good baton pass, right? Yep. Regardless of what we're doing. Either way, and just, so, just a quick aside. And so you and I as preachers, you know, we tend towards things like ChristianityDay.com slash pastors, which is where this is at. But yep. I don't think we would do this if this wasn't applicable beyond pastors. I think this is this totally. is a good uh, – there are some good thoughts in here that are good just for relating to different generations. That's right. And I'd love to know because we posted this on the Facebook page. So, like, how does this hit you? Like, what are the things that you think the author gets right? What are the things that we totally miss? All right, we're open to all that. So here, here's how it opens. Uh, it's by Trigva Johnson. Says I stepped into the pulpit of Dimnet Chapel at Hope College and looked out at a sea of young faces. It was the beginning of the school year, and these students looked very much like those from the previous years, bright, curious, with a hint of suspicion in their eyes. Yet a few subtle clues told me I was preaching to a different kind of crowd than the millennials I was used to. I invited them to open their Bibles, and instead of pulling out books, nearly every person in the room touched an app on their iPhones. Mm. I made an oblique Seinfeld illusion, hoping to register a laugh or two, but I was met with polite, blank stares. In previous years, at least a few students had seen reruns of the show, but this is the Netflix generation, I reminded myself. As I moved into the heart of my message, I was surprised to find that even basic biblical references evoked few looks of recognition. I realized then, uh, I realized then and there that assumptions I had been relying on for years would need to go out the window. Two years since that chapel service, 
I've had more practice preaching to Generation Z. After much trial and error, I've discovered four strategies that help me connect with them from the pulpit. Again, he's writing from a preaching perspective, but I think these could apply for most all of us. Why don't you kick us off? Number one, it says, I get inside my sermon. What does that mean? Even more than millennials before them, this generation tends to be suspicious of organized programs and well-trodded, well-trod church paths. Anything that seems to lack authenticity. This demands two things from my preaching, vulnerability and creativity. Good preaching now is more like singing than lecturing. Mm. Young adults want to know that your message comes deep from within and isn't a paint paint by numbers homily. Mm. That's why I do my best to get inside my sermons. I try to feel the words in my heart as I speak them because students know manufactured enthusiasm when they see it. True passion comes from within that is uh that's challenging right there but kind of getting at the the feeling authentic aspect of this next generation yeah let me read a little bit more from this one the this one is i get inside my sermon he says in preaching to gen z i've realized that presence is usually more important than polish Hmm. i allow myself to be mockable when i slip in my delivery uh, i lean into the skid and laugh at myself that's hard to do if i'm overly rehearsed i don't know how rehearsed you are by the way what does that look like for you um it uh, not, I used to be much more rehearsed. Really? And I would like to say that that was much more driven out of a decision. It's much more driven out of just busyness and time. But uh, I know what I'm saying when I get up there. I don't have the confidence, I don't think, to just go up there with a really lightly sketched out outline. Yeah, right. How about yourself? Uh, it totally depends. I'm actually, this is not really interesting information, but I'm trying to like slowly uh, have fewer and fewer notes with me. Are you? I'm trying to get to the point where I have, you know, I just started using an iPad, which is terrifying because like if it goes black, I'm stuck. Like, I don't, you know, paper never loses power, but uh, I'm trying to have less and less pages up there as a way to sort of like wean myself away from all of them. Um, But yeah, like the authenticity piece is, is, is hard to do. And I think it's really important. Number two, I offer a sense of history in place. He says, one of my favorite characters from Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is an Ent named Treebeard. The Ents are custodians and protectors of the forest. They have long memories, and their vocation of stewardship is tied to a sense of place, a deep love for their natural surroundings. Their unique understanding of responsibility is tied closely to where they've been and where they are. Most members of Gen Z I meet have little sense of history or place. In the digital age, when even groceries and fast food can be pre-ordered and delivered, fewer places exist that nurture a sense of communal identity. That's so good. Globalization gives us many gifts, but can also strip away our sense of place, the recognition that our location has a history where God has been at work. This kind of reminds me, actually, of a story we did a couple months ago where some pastor was claiming the future of church is purely digital. The place doesn't matter. And you and I both kind of went in on that a little bit, probably uh, in large part because of this particular perspective. Totally agree. There's this grounding that I think we can lose, like you said, in the digital age that uh, I think the next generation needs and I think longs for Hmm. uh, longs to have. Number three, uh, I treat people like insiders. Uh, Gen Zers uh, are the most connected generation ever, but they're also the loneliest. Hmm. Uh, Jean Twang in her book, iGen claims that this generation is on the verge of the most severe mental health crisis in decades. Wow. Sure, it's overall more and more college students are struggling with mental health issues, not just those who seek help at counseling centers, but among representative samples completing anonymous uh, surveys. And then she goes on to talk about that, but basically talking about uh, just the loneliness. 
This makes it important to address students as insiders rather than a strange, unknowable others. Mm. Nearly every student I know wants to be wanted, included and invited into something meaningful. For this reason, I don't buy into the idea that I need to scrub my message clean of all theological and churchy language that only makes my sermon feel shallow and artificial uh, and students can tell when we lower the bar to pander to them. Instead, I talk like a Christian. Hmm. True, sometimes I need to translate terms I use, but by keeping the language of faith in my sermons, I help students learn the Christian story in which uh, they can find their place. This is really this is really something. Uh, the loneliness of the next generation, despite their connectedness, their connectedness is really something that I think uh, is going to become a bigger and bigger and bigger issue uh, as we move forward. Uh, and and I think treating them as insiders and as part of the conversation, I think, is is really important. Well, and he, he goes on to say this is one of the ones that I hear a lot. Some preachers worry that Christian lingo creates barriers for young people who aren't familiar with the church and too much of it can do just that. But Gen Z is used to learning new terms when they engage with stories. I don't worry about tossing incarnation or atonement into my sermons on occasion as long as I explain what I'm talking about. I would rather students think I'm expecting much of them because I see them as insiders than belittling them because I see them as outsiders. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Here's the last one, number four. I preach for Gen Z, not at them. No one wants to feel like a project, and Gen Z is not a problem to be solved, full stop. That's really good. One of the best gifts we can offer Gen Zers is to talk less about them and more about God. Despite what we hear so often, the great temptation to worldliness for young adults doesn't seem doesn't come from drugs or sex or screens. It comes from the subtle suggestion whispered in every corner of their lives that they can go about living without giving any thought to God at all. From boomers to Gen Xers to millennials, we have seen a long trend of young people moving from identifying as religious to spiritual. But according to Twang, this is the first generation in American history that is uninterested in being religious or spiritual. One way we can show up for Gen Z is by offering winsome, consequential, mm-hmm. and God-centric preaching. What do you think of that? I think it's it, it's great because there there is a pandering that says, hey, remember the next generations in the room, right? Remember the right, Gen right. Z. And this guy's saying, no, uh, speak to them, uh, not like just kind of acknowledging them to be in the room. And, uh, you know, some of this can sound to people out there like so tiring. Like I have to think through every level of person that I'm speaking to. I have to think through every level of person that I'm interacting with. And I think the answer to that is both a yes and a no. Yeah, right. Right. There's there is a timelessness to truths. And I think there is, it's not like every generation is completely different from each other. We have the right. same struggles, but we also have our uniquenesses to us that about from the culture that we've been raised in. That's different from the 1950s or the 1970s or the 1990s. And uh, we have to be cognizant of that. And, and because if we really desire to connect with people, regardless of age, we got to kind of know what drives them and what they struggle with and, and how they relate and interact. Hmm. I like what he says here too. He's like, I'm not, I'm not saying the political or cultural issues shouldn't be discussed in worship. But he goes on, he says, recently uh, I preached during Advent on the prologue of John 1, 14, the word became flesh. I explained that the incarnation teaches us that God takes our bodies seriously. Mm. A week later, a student told me she'd been struggling with an eating disorder because she hated her body. And she said this, I love this. Just hearing that God cared about my body was something I had never thought of before. It's been really healing. By keeping God as the subject and object of my sermons, I've been amazed at how relevant they have been to the daily lives and questions of students. Mm. That is such an important temptation for communicators to sort of round the corners a little bit, to be more relevant, to be more edgy, to be more applicable. And part of what he's saying is 
keep focusing on and you'll be blown away by how much Gen Z actually resonates yes. with it, especially in areas that may, maybe otherwise wouldn't see coming, which I think is humbling. And I think it's something that I, I both of us want to get better at. And hopefully, Absolutely. you know, Gen Zers in your life or community that you want to invest in. Like this is worth taking to heart, regardless of your vocation or your life stage, because uh, we need it. We got to do it. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with some interweb insanity. And I feel... I feel particularly insane today. There's some uh, kind of insanity in the air. A lot of Florida. And I don't know if that's probably a lot of Florida. That's both of our predictions. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And that music can mean only one thing. Some of you are turning off your radios. That's, <laughs> but if you're just joining us or you're new to the show, we spend just the last few minutes because regardless of what we talked about, there probably was some heavy stuff, some light stuff, some weird stuff. We try to end just with some interweb insanity, and the Internet never disappoints. They are stories that our producers have found. We have not seen them. We have not read them. We also don't know the sound effects that will be accompanying them. So it's all a surprise to us. So if we're giggling, it's because we're reading them for the first time. If we're horrified, we're horrified right along with you. And I'm going to let Brian Fromm kick us off. New Jersey, my home state, says this. Man accidentally grows world record corn stalk. Uh, Matt Giacovelli, age 80, loves feeding animals in his Deptford Township, New Jersey backyard. Every day he spreads kernels of corn and watches from his porch as critters feast. Given all the kernels, he's pretty used to pulling weeds, but one kept growing, and it was something of a mystery. I'm not a farmer, he said. It's just this freak accident here is giving us a lot of attention. What he thinks happened is a squirrel took one of the kernels from his yard and buried it in his garden. We joked around and said, okay, let's let it grow. After a while, he started to notice something unusual. There were several cobs growing from the same stalk. We started counting them, and I think we got to 20. I said, this is unbelievable. We may have this record. <laughs> to be exact, there are 29 cobs of corn on the single stalk. Ah, wow. It's now the Guinness World Record. I don't know whether to congratulate you or not. I wouldn't. <laughs> this is a normal corn stalk has one ear. Do you know that? No, I did not. That's great. This one, 29. Wow, I'm going to go see it now. All right, England. Two skydivers in near miss with fighter jets traveling oh. at 350 miles an hour. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Two skydivers. John thinks John's it's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Two skydivers nearly collided in midair with a pair of fighter jets traveling at almost 350 miles an hour over the UK. A report has revealed the parachutists. Yes. I didn't know that was a word. Were free falling. Tom Petty style Go do it. at speeds of 120 miles per that hour. Might be coming right now. It might be. That's true. Over Shatiris Airfield in Cambridge, when the U.S. warplanes passed underneath them. Holy no cow! Way. Details of the incident in April have been revealed in a report by the UK Airport Air Airprox Airprox Board, which classified in its second highest danger category. The air safety assessors said they had seen footage recorded on the helmet cam of one of the skydivers and could clearly see the F-15 jets passing beneath. Okay, I'm uh, I'm gonna need a change of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get our first Florida. Wait a minute, hold on. What are your What are your articles doing face up right now? Well, those ones we've already done. You're reading them before we even got there. No, I'm not on at all. Brian, I just Brown, turned it we, over. We told them that we don't read them I ahead of time. I just turned it over. We read Florida. the New Jersey one beforehand. Yeah. I did not. Ah, that's I right, John. That's right. Thanks for holding is, us accountable, John. This is hashtag fake news coming from Ian Simpkins over here. It's not true. He was reading New Jersey before we started. I saw it. Florida police break up frozen biscuit brouhaha. 
A woman accused of hitting a man in the head with a bag of frozen biscuits got in a jam uh, with Fort Pierce police. The 25-year-old woman was arrested August 29th on a battery charge after the alleged carbohydrate caper. The man identified as the victim told investigators he was struck uh, in the head with frozen biscuits. He said the woman got upset and came outside where he was sitting. The alleged biscuit beatdown happened as the woman swung the bag of frozen biscuits and struck him in the forehead. Yikes. A biscuit is a type of soft bread, often <laughs> with baking powder or soda. This article describing to us what a biscuit is. <laughs> Myriad recipes exist for sweet and savory varieties. Oh, my God. I'm going to stop right there. Yeah, she said the victim's wife kicked her in the side, but investigators saw no signs of injuries. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly just looking for words at this point. Yeah, that was really interesting how it hey, turned on us there. Why don't you just add some recipes for biscuits in the store? <laughs> All right, California, man may close store after being bitten by a homeless person twice in four months. Oh, boy. A San Francisco business owner says a homeless man has bitten him twice on the same guy in the last four months, and he's had enough. The victim owns the Harvest Urban Market in city's Soma neighborhood. He says homelessness and drug problems are fueling the violence. Police arrested 29-year-old Adam Ashabrock. For the biting attacks, he was charged with aggravated assault and battery. The business owner says he often finds homeless people selling and doing drugs inside his restrooms. Oh, gosh. You didn't just do that. Uh, (laughs) If I mentioned that we didn't choose these articles, I feel like I just need to say it every 30 seconds sometimes. Sweden, last one from Sweden. Bomb Squad called the Swedish preschool. Uh, after child brings in live grenade. Oh, boy. Did we again parenthetically mention we do not choose yeah, these Yeah, gosh. I'm just going to say it every 10 seconds Officers now. from Sweden's National Bomb Squad put a preschool in lockdown on Tuesday after a child brought in live ammunition into the class. Uh, staff at the kindergarten in the southern Swedish town of Kristianstad called the police after discovering the suspicious item in the evening after the children left for the day. Once on the scene, police realized it was a grenade and decided to call in the bomb squad. Detonation experts assessed the device, which a police spokesman described to CNN as a like a rifle round but bigger, and deemed it too dangerous to move. It was then dismantled in a controlled environment at the kindergarten. The spokesman told CNN that the child had found the ammunition in a field used by the military uh, for training exercises. Police did not identify the child, saying only that they were aged under seven, the starting age for school in Sweden. It's pretty good. Oh my god! I feel like we're, we're ending on a real, not a real down, Monday. real low note here, man. Wow. Let's, let me look to tomorrow. Tomorrow, <laughs> we're going to talk about our obsession with iPhones. There's a new uh, SNL cast member who's in some hot water. We're going to talk about some of the modern idols of the church and a whole bunch of other things. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm, here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.